0: As I was preparing my message for this morning, it's interesting. I was coming across an introduction of a story in which there was a queen over in England who did not allow the freedom that we have to have at this moment. For it was Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They were 16th century preachers in England, they boldly and unashamedly preached the gospel. Well, in 1555, the two of them were sentenced to death by being burned at the stake. Tied side by side with a bag of gunpowder draped over their necks, Latimer said to his friend, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. You see, these two men were fearless when they stared death down. And the question is, how? What can enable these men to come face to face with death and not blink? Well, it's because they drew their strength from their Savior, who also stared down death in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he did not blink and he did not flinch. Jesus persevered in prayer and that empowered him to create a path that would lead to ultimate victory to all who believe upon him. And that is what we see happening in Mark chapter 14. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark 14. As a faith family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark together in a sermon series called On the Move. Last week, we covered verses 27 through 72 of chapter 14, where we saw Jesus who was rejected for our acceptance. But before we go into chapter 15 and we see the trials of Jesus and the death of Jesus, I want us to see the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has already eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. He has instituted the Lord's Supper as the new covenant meal for the disciples to feast upon in remembrance of him. They have sung a hymn together. They have gone out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus told his disciples that they would abandon him, including Simon Peter, whom Jesus said would deny him three times. And that's where we pick up now in verse Thirty-two of Mark 14. The scripture says this, "'Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake.'" He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Jesus is in Gethsemane, it's in a grove full of olive trees. In fact, I got a picture that I took of this location in which these same olive trees were present at the same time that Jesus was praying in the garden. These are 2,000-year-old trees that you see up there. Gethsemane means olive press, which is apropos because it was here in this garden where the sins of the world were pressed down upon Jesus. Jesus. Gethsemane was a place that Jesus would regularly meet with his disciples to pray. And it's here in this garden, Jesus is anticipating the full weight of judgment that was about to fall upon him for the sins of the world. Grief, sadness, and pain, they filled Jesus's heart as he prepared for what was about to happen in the coming days. There was no avoiding it. Suffering and death was the will of God for Jesus, and he suffered through it all for you. You are so loved by Jesus. And what we're going to see in the Garden of Gethsemane is this is where he goes on record to show you how much he loves you. I want you to notice in the text all that Jesus endured on that faithful night in the garden. I want you to see first, Jesus endured emotional suffering. Jesus tells his eight of his disciples to have a seat while he goes to pray. He brings with him his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. These three got to see and experience things that the other disciples did not get to see. They were there at the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured into his glorified body up on that mountain. These are the three who are here with Jesus at this prayer time in which they are seeing the, the prayer of Jesus before he is about to go and suffer and die for the sins of the world. And as he settles into the garden, he becomes, verse 33, deeply distressed and troubled. Now, up to this point in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has been unfazed, unfazed emotionally he's been very stable but now jesus is experiencing something that has him shaken that verb for troubled it means to be overcome with horror mark here is pulling back the curtains on the emotions of jesus and he is struggling emotionally do you find yourself sometimes emotionally unstable Maybe you're one in which you find your highs being really high or your lows being really low. Maybe you're someone where emotionally you just can't find that equilibrium because you get really, really sad. You find depression takes root in your heart or sometimes the elation is over the top. You're just emotionally inconsistent. Well, what we find here is that Jesus is a savior who identifies with you. He is a savior who knows exactly what it is to experience these wide ranges of emotions. Here is Jesus emotionally so overcome by the moment that he is distressed. He is the God who empathizes with you. He identifies with you in your suffering. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he agonized and he wept And yet, he committed himself to the will of the Father. He accepted the cup of suffering that would bring his death. Jesus was emotionally so stressed. He was, look at verse 34, deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus here is so overcome by what is about to happen. His soul is swallowed up in sorrow. He's on the brink of death here in the garden, But it wasn't just all of the torment that he was about to endure. It was the wrath of God that was about to squarely fall upon him. Now, we talked about this last week, that Jesus has known from the very beginning what he was about to endure. But now, here he is standing at the front of the fiery furnace of God's wrath. And the sheer terror of what is before him has him deeply grieved. He is distressed as he is about to be, for the very first time, forsaken by God. He's about to experience God's full fury toward sin. And the reality of hell was about, that he was about to experience, brought emotional turmoil. But I want you to see, secondly, not only did Jesus endure emotional suffering, I want you to see, number two, Jesus experienced physical pain. Taking the inner three further into the garden, Jesus tells them, verse 34, to stay awake. He goes a little bit farther in, about a stone's throw away from those inner three in order to pray. And Mark tells us, verse 35, that Jesus fell to the ground. He is physically brought low under the weight of the burden of what he was about to experience. Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus at this point is sweating drops of blood. This is a very real condition. It's called hematidrosis. This condition is brought about when a person is under extreme anguish and stress. They're so overcome by stress. They're so overcome by anxiety that they literally will begin sweating blood Additional symptoms can include severe headache, bruising of the body, abdominal pain, and broken skin. As Jesus is dealing with the stress of the reality of what is about to come in his direction, he was under such duress, he is on the ground sweating drops of blood. He is enduring a cruel and physically painful prayer time in the garden. He is literally being pressed down like an olive crop. Well, what has Jesus so rattled? Well, it's number three: that Jesus underwent spiritual desperation, spiritual desperation. While he's on the ground, the text says that Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, standing on the doorstep of intense suffering, Jesus was fully aware of every detail that was about to come his way. In John 18, verse four, it says, Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, he was fully aware Of what the next 24, 48, 72 hours were about to entail. The significance of this moment of preparing to absorb the full wrath of God for sin. Jesus flings himself upon the Father. Did you notice what he called his Father? Abba. It's Aramaic, it means Papa, it means Daddy, it's a word of intimacy of closeness. It's a a title of designation of one who is in a close relationship with another. You know, the Mandarin word for father is baba. And so having a daughter from South China, she has learned to come to me with a stuck out lower lip and say, baba, I have more dessert. And I'm like, girl, you can have whatever you want. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a term of endearment, of closeness, of intimacy. Here is Jesus approaching the Father saying, Abba. You see, you have that kind of closeness and access to the Father that you do not just have to refer to him as God, you get to approach him as father. The reason my little girl can call me Baba is because of the relationship. She's family. The same is true for you. It's not just God, you're family. You can approach him as father. And so when you call him God, it's kind of like one of my kids referring to me as human. Okay, that's true, and I'd respond to it, but your family, you have access to the one who made the cosmos, who knows you by name, and he invites you to approach him as father. Jesus taught us to do so in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 Jesus says therefore you should pray like this our father in heaven you see when you approach the father through Jesus the son you have access to the one who made you and knows you and loves you and calls you by name you see though G- through Jesus you have access to the one who made the cosmos You can draw near to the one who knows you better than you know yourself. And did you note Jesus's tone in his prayer? He's approaching his father with humility. Now, he doesn't minimize his sovereignty. He says there, verse 36, all things are possible for you. Jesus knows full well the power of the father. He knows that God is the one who is sovereign over all things. God is the one who's in control over all things. That you and I only woke up this morning because God said so. Our hearts are beating. We have the ability to see, to hear, and to think because God has permitted it. Currently, the earth is on its axis in such a way that we're not flying out into orbit all because the Father has ordained it. This is the one who is sovereign over all things. He's the one who tells the ocean waters, you can come this far and no further. He is the one who is fully aware of the number of hairs on the back of every Tibetan yak. He is the one who knows all things. He is the one who is in control of all things. And here is Jesus saying, all things are possible for you. He's fully aware of the power of the Father. And so he asks, take this cup from me. The cup. It's a metaphor of God's wrath towards sin. You see, because God is holy, he's morally perfect, he's just in all of his ways, he must, by his nature, punish sin. He has to, or he cannot be God. We see, Jesus is about to take the cup and drink the wrath of God for our sin. All of the wrath that we deserve for our disobedience, Jesus takes the cup and says, I will drink it so you don't have to. I'm gonna take the punishment so you don't have to. I love you so much, I'm gonna take the punishment that you deserve and it's gonna come upon me. You see, the reality is this. Every sin that has ever been committed is either paid for by Jesus at the cross or it's paid for in hell one or the other. And if you do not repent and trust in Christ by faith, hell is your future. And the reason that hell is eternal is because your sins will never be paid for in full. This is what makes the cross so significant, where it is a once and for all, where Jesus takes the perfect Wrath of God, and he takes it at the cross so that you don't have to. You're so loved by Jesus that he doesn't minimize your sin, but no, he says, your sin is so great, I'm going to take it upon me. You see, the cross is where we see that Jesus took the full wrath so that in him we no longer have to experience the wrath of God, we're now under grace. We're now forgiven and made clean. We see just as you gag at the smell of vomit, Jesus here is taking a whiff of the smell of the payment for our sin that he's about to drink at the cross and it was repulsive. He was about to be treated as our sins deserve. If you want to know how ugly your sin is, look at the cross. If you want to know how much you are loved, look at the cross. That is where Jesus steps in and makes a way for you. For in the first garden, the first Adam, he was tempted and he failed. But here in the second garden, the second Adam is tempted and he succeeds. How? Because he's in complete reliance upon the Father. In Hebrews chapter 5, Verse seven, the writer of Hebrews says, during his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus screamed out till his voice was raw to Abba, to the father. If it is your will, take this cup away from me. I don't don't want to have to deal with this. This is is too much for me, but not my will, your will be done. There's a humility. There's a posture of submission to the will of the Father, saying "I'm I'm gonna follow, I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna do what you've called me to do. You see, Jesus felt the fullest of pain and grief for bearing the burden of sin for us. But rather, here we see in Hebrews 5, 7, he cries out in agony over the fury of God's wrath that's about to be poured out upon him. And he prays with humility, not what I will, but what you will. He knew what awaited him. He knew the awful terror that he was about to experience. And he's saying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to do this, I want that to happen. But yet, here Jesus is saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to do what you will. I'd I'd prefer for this not to happen, but Lord, not my will, your will be done. You see, when you and I pray, we follow the model of Jesus here in the text, in which the subtext of our prayers is, God, not my will, your will be done. God, this is my desire, this is what I want, but ultimately, I want your will to prevail You see, the subtext of all of our prayers must always be, God, glorify your name. This is what I want more. Yes, this is my desire, this prayer request, this situation, this person, this this scenario. I bring it before you, and I pray, God, this is what I'm asking. And yet, under the umbrella of your sovereignty and goodness, I want to say, Lord, your will be done. Your name be glorified. That is my ultimate desire, is for you to make your name great in and through this prayer request. Well, Kenneth, how can I know if when I pray, it's in alignment with the will of God? And the answer is, it aligns with Scripture. You take your prayer request and you align it with the Word of God. You see, the word of God reveals the will of God for the people of God. You can know what God's will is for your life or for your certain situations through the filter of his word. And as you pray, you pray the scriptures back to the Lord and say, Lord, this is my desire and I want it to align with your word and so this is my request. Now, there are times in which I pray selfish prayers that aren't according to the will of the Father. And I'm sure if you're like me, you do the same. There's requests you bring before him and say, God, this may not be what you want. This is what I want. So I'm gonna just throw it out there to you. So what does that look like in regards to prayer with these selfish prayers that we make? I love how J.I. Packer addresses that in his book on prayer. He says this, he says, God fixes our prayers on the way up. If he does not answer the prayer we made, he will answer the prayer we should have made. This is all you need to know. I love that. I bring my requests. The Lord says, okay, Kenneth, I hear your heart. I'm going to make my will this. So I'm going to just take your prayer and make it what it really should have been in the first place. See, the Lord works through the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. And so when you pray, it is right, it is good to ask the father who loves to give good gifts to his children. You bring your prayer request to him. You plead, you beg, you wrestle with God in prayer, and you trust him that ultimately his name would be glorified and his will would be accomplished. We trust the one who wrestled with God in prayer in the garden and submitted himself to the will of God. And he did it all for the sake of your salvation. For if Jesus in this moment says, Lord, I know what your will is, but I don't want to do this, then you and I are headed for hell. And so in his prayer, he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way, I want to take it, and yet, not my will, your will be done. Jesus is submitting to the will of the Father. He's going to go through with it. He knows about the trial and the suffering and the abandonment and the betrayal and all of the suffering that he would physically experience through scourging and through beating and being blindfolded and being nailed to a cross, He's fully aware of all that's coming, and he gladly submits to the will of the Father. So we see here in the text, as Jesus is in the garden, as he's wrestling, as the the second Adam wrestling, we see he's experiencing emotional suffering, physical pain, spiritual desperation, and then fourth and finally, Jesus suffered relational loneliness. Loneliness. After experiencing the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual trial of wrestling and prayer, Jesus came back and he found Peter and the others asleep. Disappointed, he wakes them up and challenges them to stay awake and pray. Look at verse 37. Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Well, as Jesus is grappling with his coming suffering, he's inviting the inner three to pray for an hour with him. Instead, they fall asleep. He wakes them up, admonishes them to stay awake and pray. He leaves them and comes back, and he finds them sleeping again. And then it happens again a third time, where Jesus is returning, and he finds his best friends sleeping instead of praying. You see, One of God's good gifts to us when we go through trials is friendship. The Lord loves to give us people who will walk through the fire with us. One of the things I love about Scripture is you get a really good picture of the lives of these godly men. That even though we see these great heroes of the faith, they also have clay feet. In fact, John Mark, the author of this gospel, he was witnessing and traveling with the apostle Paul. And with they're going city to city preaching the gospel, making disciples and planting churches. But then they get to Pamphylia and Mark, John Mark is like I'm out. He abandons Paul. Well, later on Barnabas goes to Paul and says, "Paul, get Mark, get him back on the team and let's go." And Paul's like, "No. He abandoned me at Pamphylia. He jumped ship." he's a turncoat, he's out, he's not on my team anymore. And so you have this division that takes place in the book of Acts where Barnabas says, fine, me and Mark, we're gonna go be a team. And then Paul says, fine, I'll take Silas and they go be a team. Ultimately, the gospel goes forth. Pretty cool how the Lord still works all of that out. But you see throughout, woven throughout the rest of the New Testament, this beef between Paul and Mark. But then you get to the end of Paul's life. He's suffering in a Roman prison. He's days, weeks, months away from being beheaded for his faith in Christ. And he writes 2 Timothy, a letter to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, encouraging him to be faithful as a pastor, remain faithful to the scriptures, to endure suffering and hardship. And then he gets to the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. I love verse 11. He tells him, Bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in the ministry. You see, Paul's at the end of his life, and this man who had at once abandoned him, he's saying, that's a faithful brother. I need his friendship while I'm in the midst of a difficult trial. One of God's good gifts to you is friendship having brothers and sisters who will walk with you when you go through the trials of life. People who will lock arms with you. This is one of the reasons why life groups are so important is because you're identifying people who will be with you at your deathbed. You're identifying people who will pray with you when you go through the trial. That when you are going through difficulty and suffering because your child is a prodigal or you get the pink slip at work or you're faced with another miscarriage or you're having to go through another trial because of your parents or your children or your neighbor or whatever it is you're dealing with, you have people who say, I'm with you. I'm right here with you. People who will lock arms with you, who will pray for you. People who will call you out when you're being an idiot. You and I need that. Rebuke is a good gift. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips, Proverbs tells us. We need people who will call out our blind spots and say, "Man, I love you so much? Why are you being a fool? You need that in your life. I need that in my life. You need people who will encourage you and champion you, clap for you, pray for you and support you as you go through trial. I remember when Christy and I walked through a very difficult trial Back in 2010, 2011, it was a very difficult struggle. And one of my good friends, his name is Nathan, came up to me and he said, Kenneth, God is showing you favor. And I wept. And it was a word of encouragement that I needed at that moment to persevere, to endure the trial I was facing. And because of this man's influence on my life, we ended up naming our youngest son, Nathan, after him. There's something about friendship that helps you to endure trial when it comes. You see, friendship is one of God's good gifts to help you persevere. You need that in your life so that when you're going through the trial, when you're going through the fire, you are reminded there are people who will walk into the fire with you. Here is Jesus. He wanted his friends to stay awake with him just for an hour. Just, just pray with me. And as he's struggling in prayer with the weight of what is about to come, he finds them asleep. Now, remember a few hours earlier in the evening, Peter had already promised, hey, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'm gonna be with you to the end. I'm not backing down, and yet here he is in the hour of Jesus' greatest need, and he's asleep. A few years ago, I did a Bible study on this text, and there was this question that stopped me in my tracks, and the question is this. Do you love sleep more than you love prayer? That was the question that stopped me is in the midst of wrestling with God in prayer, would you rather sleep or rather get on your face and seek him? It's a convicting question. It's a question in which we have to examine our hearts and say, what's more important, obedience to Christ or personal physical comfort. It's a question in which we have to really evaluate, okay, what are the motivations of my heart? Am I willing to keep and persevere and endure hardship? I mean, how many times have you maybe made a promise to God, but you didn't keep it? How often have we been like Simon Peter who says, Lord, I'm with you to the very end, and then fall asleep in the next sentence. We make big promises to God, but we don't fulfill them. Here's the good news. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon your promise to God. Your relationship with God is dependent upon his promise to you. Hear me on this. Jesus is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. Let me say that again. Jesus is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. The cross is where Jesus shows you how much he is committed to securing you. Isn't it interesting? Both Satan and Jesus want you. One wants to give you death. One wants to give you life. And the way that he secures your life is through his death on the cross For you. And so now we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have my heart. You have my life. Now I'm following you even to the end. So Lord, here am I, and I'm going to fumble. I'm going to trip. I'm going to be selfish, and I'm going to turn my back upon you. There's going to be times in which I should be hitting my face in prayer, and instead I'm hitting my head on the pillow, and I'm sleeping instead. And yet Jesus is still committed to you. He is the one who has made a promise. I will be with you even to the end of the age. He has sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. Jesus is more committed to you than you will ever be to him. And we see this ultimately realized in the cross that we trust the second Adam whose victory in the garden of Gethsemane has paved a way for your eternal victory that would come through Calvary's cross and the empty tomb. Look unto the true and greater Adam who did not abandon God in the garden but remained faithful. And Jesus here, he's in an intense battle and he won the day through prayer. So, Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's well, the impact point? And it's this. When, not if. When temptation comes your way, watch and pray. Those are the two commands that Jesus gives his disciples here in verse 38. And these are the two commands that you and I are to obey today. That you keep your spiritual eyes Open that the enemy is near. He's like a roaring lion seeking to devour your faith. He is crouching at your door, and yet you must master him. Paul says in Ephesians 6:18, "Pray at all times in the spirit, with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. This is how we endure. We watch and we pray. This is how we endure and we persevere so that when temptation comes, we endure through the power of Christ in prayer. What empowered these two men to be burning at the stake and declare we are about to set a fire in England that will never go out. They were trusting in the same Savior who in the garden of Gethsemane suffered and endured hardship and was on the brink of experience, the fire of God's wrath, and he persevered. He endured. So now, so too will you. When you lean upon him, when you watch and when you pray, you cling tight to Jesus. And you too can stare down death and not blink. You can have confidence on the last day, all because Jesus was confident for you on his last day. Look on un- to him.